Welcome back, everybody, uh, to another episode of the Hit Factor podcast. Today we have a special guest. Um, we have Henning Walgren. Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, Henning Walgren. Okay. Or Norwegian Walgren. Nice. Well, all right. Yeah. So uh, most of y'all probably know, have heard the name Henning um, from the Henning Group. And so we're going to talk to him about some things about uh, the sport when he got into it and uh, his company and a bunch of bunch of stuff that may come up. And we also have Jared Fox on. So it's me, Jared and Henning. So right. let's just let's just jump right into it. Henning, uh, would you please tell us about yourself? Um, we're going to let you run a run free and you can talk as much as you want. And then we'll eventually ask you some questions. Right so, yeah, so maybe- so I- um, um, I was born in Norway in the year 1968, <laughs> and then uh, um, I started working there. And then I, you know, in 1990, I found uh, Ipsic, and I fell in love with it. This guy showed up at work with a, a bucket full of 45 ammo and a 45, and I, he told he could run around and shoot with guns. And I'm like, where? So like, you know, the next month I signed up for a class, and it's become my life. So that's 30 years into it. Um, I moved over to the United States in 1994 to pursue shooting and uh, eventually ended up in Colorado where I currently live. And then um, I uh, started, you know, after, after a while of shooting and traveling and I traveled all the world competing, then uh, I felt like I needed to do something more. So I started a company in 2006. Um, a little bit before then, I started doing a, a blog around 2005, traveling and shooting and, and you know, showing videos from nationals and world shoots and whatnot. And then it evolved into a web shop where I started selling the Tenfolio parts. I used to shoot for Tenfolio back in the day. And then after a while, I wanted to have some more parts um, from it. So that's kind of where, where it started. So you basically started building out of necessity? Maybe, Maybe. or? Maybe parts, mean, or? Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. No, I basically, you know, I wanted to have, there wasn't anybody who was really making parts for those guns, so it was very few, they, they, the ones they used to make, them used to make in the early 90s, and then by the time we got to 2005 or so, everybody had stopped making parts for them, and I wanted better sights and um, magazine extensions and uh, grips and stuff like that, so I started designing parts and had them made. Yeah, really everything I've done so far has been for things that I want for myself. Cool. So, so yeah. uh, our our uh, our first uh, if we get on into the questions here that we have, our first one is uh, so you've won a lot of major matches uh, in your time, including some uh, national titles. Um, did you take classes, or were you completely self-taught? So no, I'm uh, I'm self-taught. I mean, the only class I have is the introduction to IPSEC. You know, we had to go through the qualification and whatnot. But I started, um, you know, we were just uh, three of us in a local club. So we practiced together and we read uh, Brian Enos's book. You know, that was the only source of information pretty much. And then um, um, I got into mental training because I realized pretty quickly that, um, you know, how you perform is based on how you think and how you manage your mind. So we took, yeah, I took a class in 1992. Um, it's called the Jose Silva Mind Control Method. And it was by a lot of uh, affirmations and visualization. So I did that, and it, it was very helpful. 
dress has been pretty much been, you know, continuing to watch people shoot. Um, so from, from, so I would say mental training is, is one of the biggest aspects that I can say that's going to improve performance in, in shooting. Um, you know, you have to be able to see yourself win or do perform well. You know, your self-image, you have to, uh, if you can't, if you don't, if you doubt yourself that you could perform during competition, that's what you're going to experience. So to work with that. So, yeah, um, in uh, 1993, um, we went to, um, uh, let's see here. So went to, we had a major match in Norway in 1993. And um, I set up the match with my friends and we were also ROing it. And uh, we watched, the, so I was the RO on the stage, and I had the super squad come through. And I watched everybody shoot, and I was like, who do I like as far as like style and execution? And I noticed one guy that's like, I like how he shoots, you know? So I put in my head that I wanted to shoot like him. So I basically just, as I went to the stage to myself, which was after they had shot, then I just kept a really clear picture of how he shot, and I imagined what it would be like to, to shoot like him. So I shot the entire match, <laughs> and I was pretty new at the time. And when the match was over, I came in at 99.5% of them. So that was pretty wow. amazing, right? I basically yeah. shot the same match he did. And that was just purely from taking whatever energy or what I perceived from him and then try to move like him and try to shoot like him. So we became good best friends, and uh, we talked. And it turned out he was really into mental training as well, so we ended up... Uh, um, yeah, talking about a lot. <laughs> so, so how long after you started? Uh, how long after you started was it before you started winning major matches? So I shot. So I, I took the class in ninety and uh, ninety one. I I shot the Norwegian Championships in ninety two. I went to France and shot a major match, and um, so pretty much right away. I mean, I figured. The best way is to shoot the major matches as soon as possible. It doesn't matter if you suck, you know, just go shoot them. Because it's all learning, you know, and picking up a lot of things from see how people shoot. You can see how, how well you perform. I mean, I was pretty much at 50%. You know, I was the first goal I had was to be at 50% when I first started. And mm -hmm. um, so that was a milestone, just get to 50%. And then after that, you know, then I just, you know, practicing and then try to, I mean, I in the beginning, I... I mean, I was fast, but I was—I sucked. I had really bad points. You know, it was all speed, and I had no discipline whatsoever. So, what what was the first major match you won? Um, they was in. Uh, it was well. Let me see now. It was maybe '93. I can't remember. It depends what you consider major over there. Um, you know that. I won the Norwegian Championships in '96, but I had I moved to the United States in '94 uh, for six months to travel and shoot. So I didn't really win any major matches here because I wasn't good enough at the time. But I placed 14th at nationals, and '95 um, I went back to I think I won some. Uh, I might have won. Who knows what I won? But I probably I. Maybe Norway or Sweden, not Norway, but Sweden for sure. I think I won that at Swedish Championships or something, but I may be wrong. It's been it's been a while. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so not, I got a question. Within two three years, like in '93, uh, and it was I really um, contribute that to uh, to 
spending a lot of time on, on mental training and really visualization, taking the competition serious. I prepare for every match. So before I go shooting, I would see myself at the match, you know, see myself go in the course before every stage, sit down, close my eyes, visualize the stage many times, and really t pay attention to how I felt about it, if I was nervous or, you know, and there's a lot of nerves, at least in the beginning. And uh, I guess as you get, you know, as you get, to, you know, as long as you have a, a sense of competition, you're not sure if you're going to win, you're definitely going to have nerves. But if you can rise above that, so, the, um, if, you know, all the pressure is self-created, right? So, you know, you, 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 if you're trying to, um, you compare yourself to someone like my friend, like when I first shot with like, a, I wanted to shoot like him, but I shot free imagining being him but when you watch someone else shoot on the same squad and you are wondering if am I good enough you know is he going to beat me or whatever and all those that all that thing is a waste but it's still there so when you do your prep work at home to visualize yourself you know holding up the metal whatever um see yourself shooting freely that that thing is key so the um, you know, I was going to say, as far as like, you know, dealing with pressure, um, it, it's, um, I would say, it's based on the, the expectation you have of yourself, the fear of self-disappointment. And um, so mental, you know, affirmations, mental rehearsal. And um, I have a story from um, 93. We went to, um, to Belgium for a big match. And uh, I was practicing, you know, every day for you know, every day for the weeks coming up to it. And then four days before we're going to leave, um, I have asthma since I was born. So if I get a cold, I, I'm kind of worried about it. You know, I could, I could be down for a week or two. So I was uh, like, what am I going to do now? You know, like I, I'm going to be home. I can't practice. And I was going to shoot a lot. I figure if I shoot a lot, I want to get great. But I don't think that's the case. So I was kind of forced not to. I couldn't. I really couldn't just go um, go out to the range, so I had to stay home, take care of myself, and try to get healthy enough so I can actually travel even. So I I'd gone to the mental training part, and um, I said, okay, I stay on the couch, I lay down on the couch, and I wrote down a bunch of rules. You know, if I shoot, if I shoot one stage, if I shoot a well, it doesn't matter. This is a new stage. If I shoot bad, it doesn't matter. It's a new stage. So I created a bunch of rules like this. I recorded it into tape recorder, and um, I lay down, sort of in meditative state, counted myself down, listened to it, and I listened to myself talk to it as I was very at a very low calm level. So kind of try to ingrain it at the level where I'm actually listening and not busy like in everyday life. And um, at the end of this thing, so I did this for for four days, uh, probably a couple times a day for about half an hour to an hour. And uh, at the end of every session, I was like, I wonder where I'm going to finish in this match. You know, I've never been to Belgium before. I don't really know who who's good, who's not good, who I can beat, or what my level is. I knew I was getting to a pretty good level, but I didn't know how that measure up. So I started visualizing the results list in all 10th place, and I could visualize, see my name on 10th place, and I went up to 9, and same thing, all up to 6, and then... It comes five, and it's like, yeah, I can see myself. And I get to four, and it gets fuzzy. I'm like, what the? You know, and then three is fuzzy, two is fuzzy, one is fuzzy. 
I'll go back again. It's like two fuzzy, three fuzzy, four fuzzy, five. I can see myself. And I was like, what is this blockage? Why am I not seeing myself higher than five? This is weird. You know, like, why can't I not? Why can't you? Like, what is this? Who are these people? Who are these four people? And I had no idea even who their names were. I just heard stories. There's some good shooters out there. So I did this repeatedly. I tried to work through it. And, and uh, at some point, I almost say, like, there was, I was almost like, in a, if esoterically, I would say almost communicating with four guys in Europe that I never met. He would say, nah, punk, you ain't got no chance. They're, we're going to take you out. You know, there's like, there's no way. So, all right. So I kind of settled in on it. I'm going to be fifth. And, um, but I also took the time to visualize the people I was traveling with because we were driving with a, like a mini bus down there. So there's probably five or six of us or something. And what your buddies are saying too makes a big difference. Like say Jared, for instance, like if, you know, you shot a really good stage and you really knocked it out of the park and then your buddy's like, man, you really smoked that stage, you know? And then if you're not ready for it, your self image takes a correction. You feel uncomfortable all of a sudden, right? And then you'd be like, well, maybe I'm not that good or something. Self-doubt can start coming in. And then you correct yourself. So next stage, you kind of suck a little bit. So you kind of balance out your self-image to your performance. So I, I knew about that. And I, um, I spent time on that, too, in, in my meditation practice. And so I, said, so I thought about it. Whatever they say, it doesn't really matter. I would visualize them and hear them say, you know, say things to me like, oh, you're great. You suck, whatever. And I would create almost a bubble in my head where like it doesn't matter what they say because I'm going to do my thing. I'm going to go there, shoot. I don't, you know, it's like I kind of created like a sense of freedom from it. I also visualized driving down there. I visualized the range we've never been to, but I figured, you know, it's probably a gravel pit like everywhere else. They're going to have poppers. They're going to have paper and ROs and what's there to be afraid of, you know. They come to, um, come to Belgium, country I've never been to, and walk out there and I had this, incredible sense of freedom i was walking around and saying hi to people and I, I kind of lived in my own little bubble in a sense and I, I shot one of the best matches ever shot the only thing that i sucked on was a weekend stage because i never really thought through that really well you know or how i was going to deal with it weekend is it tends to be most people's weaknesses so i shot the match i came in fifth out of 250 people and uh it was <laughs> You know, it's kind of like, but I also like, it was weird because I was prepared for that too. So however that came about, I don't know, but um, it worked. So that really opened my eyes to like what you can do with your mind. So I got a couple questions. Um, I'm going to ask them in the in kind of the order they've come to me. Um, your, your affirmations, do you tell yourself... Um, and you may you may want to tell us what your affirmations were if you could remember. But do you just basically tell yourself I'm going to win this match, or do you tell yourself that I am a great shooter and I can shoot? You know, extreme. Is it more of a pump up and to get your performance up and less outcome based as far as the sta the store the scoreboard, or do you tell yourself that you're going to be first place? Now I know you just told us that in that match you said fifth place. But um, and then my second question is that do you think you're you, you're you basically made that fifth place come true because you've limited yourself to fifth place? Well, so I, so I would say the affirmation is really based on action, you know, okay. technique and action. So really as little as possible based on results, because yep. that 
that doesn't really matter. You're competing against yourself in some ways, but you measure yourself against other people. So I would say that um, I, I put a high emphasis on affirmation. You know, when I see my sights, sights are on the target and squeeze the trigger. You know, things like that. So just, you know, like I, you know, you have a, because I'm a computer programmer since I was a kid. So it's kind of the same thing. Draw the gun, press any on the target. When I see the sights, the squeeze, you know, squeeze the trigger. And uh, I also, you know, also like the acceptable target area, right? So I would say that um, to say that I'm a great shooter and try to boost your ego or anything like that, I don't think it helps um, because you can get smacked down from that, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, you, you, you do the practice so you know kind of your skill set level. You also kind of, you know, you challenge yourself in practice to see where you start failing. If I'm, if I'm not paying attention to what I'm doing, if I'm, if I'm drawing but not in the moment of drawing, I'm just rushing the draw because I have an idea I'm going to have a great draw or I'm a great shooter. None of those things are being part of what you're doing in a moment. So the whole thing is like bringing everything you're doing to the physical action of what you're doing in that moment. So you're running around, you know, how you set up on the target. It's all about, okay, I'm coming in. I see my, I bring my gun up and I see my sights and I squeeze the trigger when the, when the sights are on the acceptable area. So I would say focus on technique, focus on the action. As far as the results goes, that's more like, trying to imagine where you're going to be and that it kind of comes from the I guess in some sense like it, it probably comes from the subconscious in a way because you think it, we all have an idea how how we perform the more you compete you kind of you see from previous matches yeah I'm probably going to be here and there but if you start beating yourself down or boosting yourself up without backing it up with something real then you kind of la la land you know in, in a sense I think it's but I, I'm, I'm really intrigued by the mental aspect of it because like I said I, I spent four days trying to visualize myself higher than fifth place but it just wasn't happening you know like I could not whether and I think in some ways it's kind of maybe it was more of a true reflection on my skill set at the time because I was still a pretty fresh shooter I mean I had two and a half three years maybe into it you know so it's kind of new but if you just you know if you can run decently if you can shoot good and we were shooting about maybe 30,000 rounds a year at the time, 20, 30,000 rounds a year. I, I don't think that um, shooting, uh, unless you bumped it up to say maybe 100,000 rounds or something and made it a job from the beginning, but who, who has time and money for that, you know? So, yeah. So you were basically telling yourself, if I see my sights and I'm disciplined, the results are going to come. Right. The outcome is going to be good. It wasn't so much that I'm going to burn this stage down and I'm going to shoot this stage better than X, X guy over here. It right. was you had a process that you wanted to focus on and you basically talked that into your head and and believed it, that you knew that if you followed these steps, these these rules, they would um, the uh, that would have that was how you were going to shoot your best. Yes, yeah, so I would say like you could break it into like the, the physical practice and building your skill set. And do that with a very being very present in a moment. So when you when you're drawing, shooting, moving, the only thing it's kind of it's a it's a meditation in a way and being present. And the other one is your self-image. So depending on your background, you know everything that's influenced you through your whole life will come up. And in, in if you think you're you know if you if someone always said to you they're awesome, you're great, you're probably going to have a you know high you know maybe. It could be incorrect uh, 
image of yourself for that matter, but you can have a, at least there's some support there, right? Mm -hmm. And then, um, but seeing, so, so in some sense, you know, when we go to the range, we're all friends and you are competing too. So you are competitors. You know, I love competing with Jared too, you know, or you give me some shit. <laughs> and then, <laughs> you know, we, you know, it's, it's, but it's like, it's based on the performance and it really is how well you can handle the pressure and the pressure in my way is like, I would say that, you know, your self image, if you, if you're free from it, if you just go out there to shoot what you can do in practice, you will, you will do your same thing. Like you drive a car, but if you all of a sudden driving car and you're competing with someone else, you start making mistakes because you try, you know, you're not paying attention. You're worried about your performance and any thoughts of worry or thinking about a hope I want to win is just garbage really like it's excess stuff that you don't need so I mean I think if you break the sport down it's a process elimination because the fastest shooter does less you know he, he moves smoother or you know he does less stuff as we begin in this sport we do a lot of extra stuff because there's so much to think about you break it down to this to simplified you know when you draw the gun you don't move your head you know you bring the gun up to your eyesight and uh and things like that, but if you draw the gun, you bring, you move your head at the same time. All of a sudden, you have to align both of them. So you, you come to the process of elimination. So the, the, you know, when you watch someone shoot an incredible performance, and they see like, wow, that was just incredible, and beautiful to watch, you know, because they they do less in every little movement they're doing. Everything is less. They just do what's necessary. So the 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 pressure from other people is. You know, if you're really trying to fight for a national title and then you, you know, you really want that title, but you see a lot of times people come up to second place and it cannot, it takes years to break through that barrier because they just can't visualize or see themselves win. They don't think they earn it or deserve it or something. They could be, and that may not always be the case, you know, but they, that, I've seen a bunch of times and I think it's a, it's a self-created barrier and it's also a barrier that kind of maybe naturally arises because you, You've been coming up from the bottom, you know, come up there and you have your heroes in the sport. And it's like, man, do I really want to beat my hero? I've looked up to this person or these people for so long. And then you have to see yourself, I'm actually just as good, maybe better. And can you can you break through that somehow? And that's where the mental aspect comes in, where you you say you kind of objectively try to judge it and say, you know what? My perform I can I can move just as fast, I can fast, I can shoot just you know, just as good. And what else is there? Well, it's the seeing yourself be able to win something, to deserve it. And that, that I think, is uh, it's all mental at that point. Yeah, that's, that itself is difficult because sometimes, like you were saying, um, you made so many good points, um, stuff that I've you, – you've said stuff in a different way, um, you know, the um, – the talk what you're talking about now and and not only is it i don't want to beat my idol or the my hero or whatever but you also you have to get to that point to where you realize like you just said that oh i am that good because if you don't think you're good enough then you're going to be right yeah and uh, exactly. that's, that's yeah that's that was, there, that was pretty good there's a different thing when we're talking right now you know when i moved to phoenix and well, i went there in 94 and then i went back again and uh you know, came over to the United States for a couple of years on the, as a tourist for several years, and I got a green card and became a got a green card, became a citizen eventually. But when I was in Phoenix in the late '90s, I, I worked with um, a neuroscientist uh, lady down there. Um, she was working with Gary Hall, this Olympic swimmer, 
and it was the light and sound machines, and, and it had to do with how you realign. Basically, what she explained to me back then is like when we're talking right now, you know, the the brain waves is like in the beta, very high, you know, like we have a lot of things going on, a lot, a lot of very busy in our heads. And when you go down to sleep or, or um, when you dream state, you're much lower brain frequency. So you're trying to do that consciously through meditation. You can do it with the lights and the sound machines. They were pretty popular in the in the shooting sports back in the 90s. They were called Sports Link. And some people used it, and it helped me quite a bit. Um, I have some pretty incredible experiences from it, just on a, I almost like said a physical level, reactionary things with how my left and right eye works. Um, but it it creates a really um, a really calm state of mind. And if you can do affirmations at that state, so if you just lay down on the couch and listen to a tape that you pre-record to yourself, I prefer that because you can say whatever you want to yourself. You know, you can you can ingrain what you want. You almost listen better. You know, you actually take it in from a state when you're almost dreaming, and you you hear it. You actually hear it, and you start believing it, and you actually like, you know what? Why is that not true? Why you can tell yourself lies. You can tell yourself the truth. Whatever. There, you know, words like not. I I should not. You never in in mental training. You never use the word not. You never use the negative. You always find words to express what you want to do. Like, don't focus on the tree when I'm going around the corner. You're going to hit the tree kind of deal, you know? So you, what you focus on is the key in mental training. So you, you write down all the positives. Never use, I, I don't, I shouldn't, I don't want to, or anything like that. It's, the, it's what you actually, the actually thing you want to do. And by doing that, you're, you're ingraining things that you want to see in yourself. So if you work on your self-image, for instance, like you say, I want to be great. I'm a great or whatever. Yeah, we all great. But you know, if you say if you can if you can just kind of get rid of some of those things and focus on the actual things you're doing, like the technique. How do I come into shooting box? Well, I you know develop something to practice and say, okay, I'm going to do this and I'm going to shift my balance. I think in shooting it's very very important to be grounded, to have a good platform. To see a lot of people when they run around, they're fast and they have. They kind of like they're top heavy. They don't have a big grounding. So when you come into shooting position, they're kind of like weak in a sense. So having a good platform, and you, when you're moving, when you're stopping, when you're shooting, so you take that recoil through the gun into your body down into the ground. And by moving in that sense, you're always kind of with yourself. And that's the same thing in mental training. You're you're um you 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 are um create a set of goals. I would say. That he, this is how I function, and that's what you that's what you focus on. Yeah, it takes it takes time, and it's something that you learn as you go, and you get better the more you do it. Would you agree? It does, and then I'm, there's so much focus on speed, you know. But if you think about the time that we shoot something, it's just the result of what you just did. Yeah. So if you if you, if you can, it's like oh, I shot that in three seconds, and everybody tries to shoot that in three seconds. When you don't try, right? Like, you all know, don't try, just do it. The same thing is, like, you don't think about the time you're going to do or try to beat a time. You just keep focusing on the actual technique and the movement. And then all of a sudden, when you when you get to that free state, you know, when you see your sights, you shoot it, and it, and it goes quick because you saw it. There was no there was no need to do anything else. So I have an, uh, another story about that from, um, I think it was... Um, 
might have been 99 or 98, the Golden Gate Championships in, in uh, San Francisco. We, um, I was using those lights and sound machines, and I, I didn't have, I, I didn't want to walk around with blinking glasses, you know, because the light and sound is like there's blinking blinks, uh, or like light, the blink goes on off, and they, you know, and then there's a, on the, on the headset, there's kind of like a low humming sound, like boom, 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 boom. And these things correspond to your brainwaves, so they can kind of put you in more of a calm state. So we had this um, this stage out there, which was a long running course, and uh, Jojo had just run it, and I think he ran it in 27 seconds. And I was like, that was badass, you know? And um, it was complex. It was running, shooting. It would either stop and shoot a bunch of steel, or try to shoot him on the move. But a lot of times when you try to do something on the move, if, you, if you're not in the moment, you miss him, right? And we came up to this window where there was two swinging targets and an activator, a fixed target. And we're standing looking at this for a long time. I want to shoot this. I'm going to have this plan. I'm going to shoot this target. And, and if that's not there, I'm going to shoot this target. It's a kind of ABC plan going, you know, just worst case scenarios. So I decided to listen to the just the, the tune for like five minutes or something before I was going to shoot. I visualized it. I had my plan. But it put me in a, such a relaxed state. So when I started shooting and running through this course, I got up there, ran around, I come up to the steel, I'm like, I'm not going to stop and shoot them, I'm just going to shoot him on the move. So I shot him on the move, and I get to the array where I have, like, swinger comes out here, shoot the other target, come up to the other swinger, and I, I get up there and I see actually what's in front of me, and my first thought my, my, was, like, my plan sucks. And I just, like, I saw the targets, I'm going to shoot that one, shoot that one, shoot that one, gone. It wasn't complex at all because I was really present in that moment and I saw the targets come out. I had my gun up. So I go ahead and point to the sights and the target and then there, here comes the other target. I shoot that target and I didn't, I wasn't disturbed by thinking or plan and then I finished off the stage and I shot in 22 seconds. So, so that was like, that was also another kind of a big moment for me. It's like, okay, well, it's not trying to beat someone or do anything. It's just putting yourself in the in the the right mindset. But it really, is like you know the mindset should that it technically if we could live in that mindset to be the best, right? You're always focused on what you're doing every moment. Um, you know you'd write better. You know anything you can do. So, All right. so continuing on with our. Uh, questions here so uh i know you don't really shoot a ton of area national championships anymore but uh back when you were you know actively competing at all the area matches and shooting nationals every year um what did your live fire practice schedule look like my live fire mm -hmm. um so you know i would you know um when I lived in Arizona, I would pretty much practice every day. Um, that that was my job at the time, or I didn't have a job, whatever you want to call it. But I was shooting for a living, so the, um, I would go to the range once a day, shoot 300, 500 rounds, maybe more. Um, I found that um, about about 500 rounds, I'm kind of full. You know, like I I don't get any more out of it. I also think that you know. We shot a lot of matches down there. We'd shoot three to five matches a week. So the best practice was actually matches. And because you practice with a different mindset when you're setting up targets and you do squats or to shoot, there's no, 
there's no sense of importance to it, you know. You're just shooting, oh, I can do it again. In matches, you only get one shot. So I I learned more from shooting matches, and eventually now that's all I do, I just shoot matches. But I don't care as much anymore anyway. But the, there's some good drills out there. You know, there was one uh, drill that Robbie taught me years ago that he was doing out there, and it's like a target at, you know, the exact distance, but it doesn't matter. But it could be 7, 15, and 20 yards. So you, tar- you, you practice two shots per... You shoot them in different order. But the whole thing is to to um, to shoot to shoot what it, you know to um, you have to do whatever it takes to hit the 70-yard target, 15-yard target, 20-yard target. A 20-yard target you're going to take a little more time than a 7-yard target. So by practicing back and forth, I'm you know say start at 20, then you go to 15, and go a little faster in seven. But you you're really practicing your visual skills and your your discipline in that sense. And the next time you go 7, 15, 20, the next time you go 15, 20, 7, or 15, 7, 20. So you kind of ingrain in yourself what's important. You got to, if it's a 20-yard target, you have to be more present. You know, 7, you can get away with some sloppiness. Um, I would shoot um, build drills, 7, 15, 25, 35, and 50 yards. Um, you know, see what you can do in every distance. I find more benefit from shooting 24 in that 25 yards and out, so 25 yards, 35 yards, 50 yards. 50 yards is, you really have to, you know, pay attention, right? So you're going to, Charlie Deltas, you're going to get some Charlies probably, but, you know, Deltas or Mike is pretty easy. But shooting drill deals at 50 yards is, is pretty cool. Um, shoot group shooting, uh, 25 yard, 50 yard groups. Do the slow pace and try to see what the smallest group you can shoot. I find that if you over control it, if you take too much time, your brain starts kicking in again, or your thoughts start kicking in. So you you start over controlling it, you overthinking it, and so that's what build drills and the group shooting, you know, so they kind of break through those barriers. Um, shooting uh, like one per target, set of five targets. Um, so you quickly or two two per target doesn't matter, but you get your target transitions because you know the biggest savings you can do when you're shooting is between the targets, not on the target. So really, really focus on that. So that would be simple stuff like that. It would probably be most of my practice. I learn the most from. I don't anymore if I was going to go out to the range and practice, which I don't see happening at the moment. But um, <laughs> I, I would just, I would, I would probably set up, a, go out to the 200 yard range and start at seven and move back to 50 and and do that over and over and shoot 500 rounds that way. So, um, but I think you should. Um, you know, if you're going to get better, I'd say you need to shoot three or four times a week. It's just like going to the gym. You know, three three can almost be like maintenance, but four, four or five, you start to really, you know, get somewhere. The one thing I want to say about practice versus matches. So we went to the, the World Shoot in 93 in England. That was an awesome match. And I practiced really hard. I took actually two weeks off before the, before the match. So I practiced... You know, on my own after work, and then I had a whole week that I just practiced for the match, but I took a whole week off before the match because I know at least how I work is if I shoot all the way up to the match, I'll have I'll carry the memory of how great I was, right? You know, great. And uh, you know, you remember your best runs, you forget about the bad ones, and he's like, "Oh, I can do this." And if I take that into the match without taking a break, I tend to come in maybe overconfident and. I would like, I'd rather come in a little bit not so confident, so I'm more humble, 
and that makes me have to pay more attention at the match. So I would take a week off before a major match. I would practice quite a bit before then. I'd realized anymore I don't learn that much anymore. It's like it's very minimal. I've, 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 you know, years ago I came to the conclusion that if I'm actually going to be getting any better, I probably have to shoot 100,000 rounds or more per year, if that even would make a difference. I remember we went to Philippines in 99, and um, I was practicing down there before the match, and uh, Eric Rafael was there. He was practicing, and I asked him how many rounds he had shot that year, and, he, and I had shot 45,000, so I'm like, I'm pretty good, you know, I got 45,000 rounds. We had shot 200,000 rounds that year, you know. Wow. At least that's what he said, you know, and I'm like, well, I realized right there and then, like, I don't have the drive to do that. I don't have the discipline to do that. But I think if you're going to be, if anyone did that and had a regimented program where you go out and practice all the different things you can imagine, it's going to become so second nature that you're going to be, it's going to be easy. Going to a match is going to be easy. But I think shooting as many matches as possible is a key thing. Um, I think three to five times a week of shooting but set up stuff like, I would set up shooting stuff, like as I said, like, you know, 7, 15, 20 yards, build drills out to 50 yards, group shooting. Um, you could, um, all the other stuff with movement, you can practice that from box to box and you can, you know, get your entry and exit right, you know, so as soon as you pull the trigger, you leave in the box. Um, but you can pick up a lot of that stuff in local matches. So shoot as many local matches as possible. But it all kind of, you know, how professional you want to be, you know. Do you dry fire? Did you dry fire? Um, at all, for sure. But um, I, when I first started out, I would take my gun to work. It was back in Norway, and I would bring my gun. I asked my boss if I could uh, bring my gun to work and dry fire at lunch hour. So I, yeah, we had an extra room up there that nobody was using, and I would just have my gun, my magazines, and I would go into the room, and I would dry fire for 30 minutes every day at work. And that saved me time. It was more efficient than I have to do it at home, so... And I did that. That helped a lot, for sure. Good stuff. I've got a question real quick. This is this is one we're going to cover. Let's just go ahead and get into it now. Back then, what was the divisions in the in the game? So back in the early '90s, it was just one division. Okay. You know, there wasn't anything else. I think '93 was the first year they introduced standard, which is limited in USPSA, and that was the kind of more of a test uh, or beginning of it. You know. They they gave out the awards, I remember, but um, that was the first time. So that was two divisions, you know. First one, everybody shot the one division, which was kind of cool. So it was open. Yeah, what was that? I mean, some people. I had a back in the early '90s. I would have a 45 comp 45, eight round magazines, you know. And uh, <laughs> then they started out. Some people had just gotten the 38 supers built, so they had 10 rounds instead of eight. And then '92 or so, they start putting red dots on them. And uh, then the the P9s and 10 folio came out, so they had high caps, so they were pretty, you know, like 92, 93. By the time we got to Nash, the World Shoot 93, Robbie had a 9 by 25, you know, so everything happened really quickly. So the open game became the game because that was the only game. It was really only one division. Standard was still kind of like, yeah, it's a new division for the people who still want to shoot iron sights type of deal. So when you would show up to a match and and some some guy that you shoot with all the time shows up and he's now got a red dot and you didn't, you right. bet when you, you bet after that match you were trying to find out how to get a red dot. Right. Yeah. 
Because I mean, yeah. you were, it, it was an arms race. I mean, it was literally equipment equipment won, went, won right? Man, I yeah. would have loved it back then. <laughs> well, I got my first. Uh, I got my first red belt in '92, and uh, on the ten folio, and uh, it was a eight point five thousand. It was a big scope, you know. The other guys were shooting the pro points, Tasco pro points and stuff. And I mean, even I think even '90 was maybe the first year the red dots came on, but really '90, '92, '93-ish. By '94, everybody had them, you know. So, yeah, that was a big deal. But then, you know, so that was really only. Open was really the only game, and that was cool. And the stages reflected it too, you know. So now we have all these different divisions. So now it's like you have to kind of think about some people shooting this, some people shooting that. So, so all are friendly and <laughs> all are things. So kind of expanding on that a little bit. Um, so what did you think were kind of so you were involved in the sport pretty much when during from one division to where I think we're up to eight now. So what did you think was different in the days of one division compared to, say, when they added the second? And then I believe uh, Revolver Production Single Stack were added in the mid-2000s, if I'm not mistaken. And now we've added, like, three more. Right. I mean, I like – so if you're asking me if it's, like, uh, if I liked it back then or about in the now, you mean, or – yeah, yeah, that and, uh, you know, how's the, I guess, uh, in a roundabout way, how has the level of competition in the sport changed with the addition of divisions? Well, I think in some ways when everybody shot the same gun, it was easier because you all the stages could be, like you say, everybody had an open gun, for instance, like all the stages would be tweaked to that. I mean, there was still, there was still a lot of easy targets and easy shooting back then too, but and like in England 93, we had one stage where, you had three headshots at 10 yards, right? Just kind of like in a waveform. And you had a full size target at 35. It was a speed shoot. That was one stage. But if you visually looked at it, the target at 35 had the same size as the headshot. So when I looked at that, it's like, okay, I just shoot him at the same. I shoot him exactly the same. And uh, that worked out, you know? So, but how often do you see a 35 yard target now? You know, it's a uh, local matches. Very, my match, you will, because <laughs> yeah. I, I like it. There was some more physical stuff too. You know, they had, uh, you know, climb over stuff or run up big, big, uh, you know, a lot of ladders and stuff like that. You know, we would shoot out of a helicopter or like start in a helicopter, jump out. So the big world matches was pretty spectacular because you had, had a, you know, a fighter plane or sitting inside it shooting at a cockpit. I did that in '95. So there were some, there's some cool things that was. You know, they were listening that it wasn't about the shooting, but it did make it more, you know, it was more staged. Um, but even then, I think the, it's hard to say, you know, like I, I like, I like that there's divisions, but that it, maybe there's too many, I don't know, but they're trying to, you know, please everybody, right? And there's so many different guns and they are not competitive against each other. You know, a revolver is not going to be competitive to anything. So, <laughs> right? And I'm... I started, actually, I shot my very first match with a revolver in, in 91. That's all I had. I had a Smith 686, and I had one speed loader, and it was an 18-round postal match from uh, the American Handgun Air Postal Match. So I had one speed loader. We shot one stage, you know, six shots. We go to the next stage. Okay, I have a speed loader. You get to the last last shooting position. I had to pick six rounds out of my pocket, you know. I just started. <laughs> that sounds horrible. <laughs> That, that does not sound fun. So, I mean, immediately after that, I was like, I'm not going to continue doing this. So I, I bought um, a 45, 1911 45. 
and I loved it. I love, you know, it's like I, I love that just as much as anything. I think it's great that if you have a specific type of gun or setup you like, that you can compete with other people in the same. Um, you know, if we're going to bring in like the, I don't know if we can jump on the IPSC, USBSA thing, but, you know, you know, in, I, in IPSC, we have 15 rounds in the production. Here we have 10. That makes a big difference. And mm -hmm. I like 15. So, interestingly enough on that, um, last year I shot Ipsic Nationals in production optics. And it's it's 15 round as well compared to where you have 140s here. Right. And I think that's one area we really missed out because it makes the division so much different than yeah. everything else. It does. And I, you know, I shot the Norwegian Championships maybe a couple of times or something. I can remember once or twice in the production optics when they first came out. And uh, <clears throat> I, you know, it, as long as everybody has the same competing with the same equipment, that makes it fair and makes it fun. It doesn't really matter if you're 15 or 23, you know. It's fun to have a 23-round magazine here because you can you can you can plan the stage a little bit more flexible. Um, but when you have 15, like IPSC, their stages are so different. There's a lot more short courses, so mm -hmm. 15 rounds is going to go away. For and I mean, most of the stages you're going to shoot with 15-round magazine. It's going to be you know some stages use two magazines and then maybe one or a couple of two stages maybe you shoot use three magazines you know. Um, so there's very you know the one two three ladder, so. It's, I like shoot Nipsic too. It's, um, it, that it, it's a good format and a lot of good stages. We just shot the European Championships in Serbia last year, 24 stages over four days. And the stages are so good in my mind. The, they were starting to, they were actually a little bit easier than I expected. I expected the goal to be a super hard match because I've seen that in the past. And I do like hard matches. I like it when it's really difficult. So, it, it separates people much more. If it's really easy, like the super running gunning stages, people are going to be be similar, you know, without really separating the skill sets. But the the big difference, like I would say, like on IPSC, is like they have, you know, a lot of setups. You come into a shooting position, you set up. You come over here, you set up. There's not that many opportunities to run and shoot a target on the move. And that's what we have in USPSA, and that's what I also love about USPSA too, because it's, you know, how how fluid uh, fluid you are through the courses. You can really cut some time down if you really know how to. And um, but when you go and in, in shoot an IPSC, it's like you're pretty much fighting for very few points difference because the the hit factors are lower. So that that's another big part of the sport. But you know, pick a gun you like, shoot whatever division that you enjoy. You know, might take on it. Um, it's no. yeah. Now, what about the uh, being involved in the sport for so long? How do you see the level of skill today compared to, you know, what what it took to win thirty years ago compared to what it takes to win today? You think the uh, the top guys are still at about the same level? Is there just a lot more people at that level, or or have people gotten a lot better? I I you know you and I have talked about this a couple of times. Before you know, and I I think that there's definitely more people that's good. I think that level has gotten higher. You know, like um, classes like Ben has taught. You know, over the years, made a lot of people think and improve their skill set. So that's made a lot of people figure it out quicker. You know, um, you know, back in the 90s when uh, Robbie was you know the man, 
and uh, he he taught classes and he made other people better. So like you know that that makes a big difference. But it's hard to say because I mean I was really competitive in the '90s and maybe up to mid 2000 ish, you know, something like that. And then at that point, basically about the same time I started my company is when I started facing out on competition. Also getting older too. I'm you know I'm turning 52 this year, so I'm not as competitive. So it's hard for me to to compare as much, you know, because I, I am a little slower, I have a little more weight on me, so I'm a little, <laughs> you know, not, not as quick, you know, and I can tell like I'm, and I don't, I don't put a lot of effort into it. I put a lot of mental effort into it when I go to competition. Yeah, I want to be awesome, right? But I also realize I'm not. So it's like uh, I can shoot, you know, if I, just my pure shooting skills probably hasn't, um, they probably they improve or stay the same or they're, they're good, you know, when it comes to movement and, and it really comes down to the stages too. The, the course, the type of courses, I say if Americans want to find out where they are, go to the world shoots or the European championships and you will see who really are good because a really good USPSA shooters may not be as good IPSC shooters. I mean, I've gotten smacked a couple of times going over there thinking um, this is going to be easy and it's not. Do you think and, that goes both ways? Uh, yeah, I think so. I think that they come here and they won't be as competitive because they're used to, you know, really more disciplined, hard shots, setups, hard setups, shoot them, and uh, short courses. And they come here, some of them will probably do okay, but uh, the, the best shooters going to be best shooters no matter where they are because they have the overall skill set, you know. But then when you start to go a little bit, you know, from the 95% to like maybe 85%, and they move around. They're gonna they're gonna learn some stuff. And um, I think both is good. I I don't want to see IPSC becoming USPSA uh, in a sense of like it, I don't I want I like the format. I like the skill set. The testing. There can be a it can be a little blend. There would be nice, you know, because uh, USPSA has a lot to offer. You know, I think that courses are fun. You know. But they really, I mean, if you know that, you know, go to a match, and it really depends how much effort they put into the courses. That's what we came for. That's what we paid our money to shoot. And if they really set up something really intricate, it's fun. I mean, uh, nationals, USPSA nationals, I remember like 94, my first one I shot, and I loved it. You know, it was like the Paso Park. And um, it was it was a lot of... Um, they had a lot of bobbers, swingers, windows, and stuff like that. So target, you know, in the window, swinging or bobber coming up. There were a lot of timing stuff you had to do. Um, some of those stages stand out to me because they were like, well, these are, you have to really think about this. Like, do I shoot this and that? And then not really having seen a whole lot of that before. It was like, well, this is kind of intimidating, you know. Um, but that, that shows you the people who have the experience. But, yeah. Lot, I think a lot, lot of effort needs to be put into courses. That's where it's all about. Cool. So, moving on forward, uh, talking about your company. So, what made you decide to start your own company and build gun parts? Yeah, so I mentioned a little bit before, but it was really, you know, I was kind of ready to do something else. I had started my blog and really purely just to share my shooting experience and traveling and I thought it was fun because I really, really enjoyed shooting. And but back in the day, my website was henningshootsguns.com because I was like, I was thinking, what do I do in my life? Well, I shoot guns. So like, all right, let's call it henningshootsguns.com. And it was a purely a um, sharing experience of shooting and traveling. And then, I, you know, then after about a year or two of that, 
I came to the feeling like I want to do something more because I got a lot of attention on the website. A lot of people went to it to see it. And I had, uh, you know, good connections with Tenfolio and EAA. So I started selling those parts on there because they weren't available except from a distributor. So I did that. And then, uh, then I also felt like, you know, there are some better parts I want to have. I want to have a mag extension. I want to have better trigger grips and stuff like that. And I used to modify my own mag, my, uh, my own base pads because they were, I don't like the base pads stick out, you know, like the factory base pads that would stick out. And when you grab them, you have that in your, you know, in the palm. So I basically contacted the machine shop and said, I want to make these parts. Can you make them for me? And I literally just drew on a napkin. That's how it started. And we started making them. And uh, I really loved it so much that I, I needed to get a bunch of parts made. So he's like, well, he was a one-man shop, and I was like, I can't only do so much. So like, I'll come up and run them for you, you know. So I came up there and I ran the parts. I ran my own parts on this machine, and I, nice. <laughs> you know, it was it was fascinating to me, you know. So I loved it. So real quick, when you say about the mag, the base pads you didn't like, are you talking about like on? Uh, I'm gonna use a Tanfo base pad. The factory ba the base pad's plastic, and it's got this little lip on the front of it, right. and you didn't like that part, so you wanted it trimmed off. Yeah. Okay, I used cool. To take, I used to take the, the um, Tenfolio base pads. We also had the lip on. I would grind them down on the grinder, and they looked really redneck, you know, but I would use that because I would I get a better purchase on it, you know, like you have a better index on it all the way, right? So I could, right. I could more securely point the finger when I'm loading it. So when I started uh, designing base pads, I would design them around that concept. So I call them the no-lip design. Um, okay. You know, and then, um, but I, you know, it was a, I really, really, I, I had no idea I was going to learn machining at all, but, you know, we, uh, and I, I, you know, I've a lot of different machine shops that made my parts over the years. And then I got to a point where it was like, I couldn't really say, did I make this? Well, I designed it, but I didn't make it, you know, so I wanted to make it. So I, I bought a machine, um, and I think it was 2011 or 12 or something. I didn't know how to run it. Um, found a guy that could run it. We ran it for a little bit, and then I figured that didn't work out. So I went through a couple little things like that, and then about five years ago, um, we got a new office space, and then I bought another machine. I still didn't know how to run it, and a friend of mine was going to help me out with it, and uh, that didn't really work out. So I figured I got to learn how to do this. So I sat down on the computer and uh, had a guy show me the software, and then I started making it, and I really enjoyed now. Like it did. Like I said, the, I did not know this is going to be a passion of mine, but I'm a com complete fool geek now. You know, like tools are, <laughs> tools are fun. You know, just the, you know, two flute cutter, three flute cutter, seven flute, whatever it is. You know, like I'm, I'm constantly trying to figure out how I can make these parts faster and better. And, uh, and that's the name of the game. You know, got to make it efficient. So I learned a lot over the years, and um, we got three CNC machines now. And uh, it's just, um, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's something I really care about. I'm very passionate about it. Cool. So I think you kind of covered my next question, was what parts did you start with? And then um, right. how yeah. has it over Base pads. And I'm still making <laughs> yeah. base pads. <laughs> I know. I have lots of your base pads. I have your base pads. Uh, yeah, and so, I, want, I want to say one more thing, too. So, like, because when it came to a gun, you know, from shooting, the the – 
the things that's important, and we all know this, but like the grip is important. I've always cared about the grip. I used to modify my grip with putty and all kinds of stuff and build them into a custom thing where I can hold it better. I did that for a while and then eventually settled on a, a full checkered grip. The trigger is important, really the trigger feel, how, how the trigger breaks, the, the position of the trigger. So I like to have, you know, I like to have a 90 degree on my finger. So when, the, when I'm breaking the trigger, I want that finger to be at 90 degrees. I don't want it to be extended forward or further in. So that's key for me to like to have a good trigger control because I experimented with it, both a long trigger, short trigger, and a medium trigger, and I make them all um, for the 10 folio. And uh, you know they, there are some things you can do, like where on the finger you pull the trigger, but I want to have it in a certain spot. And so that was really so the trigger is important, the grip's important, and then the sights. Um, what kind of sights? You know I've experimented with um, wider front sights, very little light in the rear. You know, maybe three, four years ago, I would use a 125 thousandths front sight and a 128 thousandths rear sight. So there was hardly any gap at all. And um, that had to do with my eyesight too, you know. So but that worked really well for me. But on the longer targets, it would cover a lot. So um, on the iron sights right now, I probably use 100 front and I use 115 rear. So I, I like a very, I don't like a very loose sight. I've, I've used those too. Um, I went to, um, I think I went to uh, probably Serbia again in 2010, and I would been practicing a lot. I shot 20,000 rounds in two months, right, practicing for it. This, I mean, this this comes back a little bit to the IPSC versus USPSA. So I practiced really 500 rounds a day, 20,000 rounds in two months, and I had a 90,000 front side and 135,000 rear side, super open, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, it worked great for everything in the U.S. It could shoot really fast. And I came over there, and everything was super small, tiny, and 15, 20 yards away. And I, my point sucked, you know, like I was way too many Charlies. So that was a bad strategy. So then I went the other way. And, um, you know, I started kind of tight sights, and I went loose sights, and I'm back to tight sights. Um, big front sight, tight rear sight. Now I'm kind of like 100, 115. And that, that's been working good for me. So, but sights are really key and a good grip. Um, how the grip feels when they draw, we can get a consistent grip on it. The fact that they're, like I make checker grips, right? So like they, I like that they can, they don't, the gun doesn't move. Mm-hmm. And I don't, be, by having it really, you know, checkering, we, you know, both of you guys know, but the gun doesn't move in my hand. I don't have to fight the gun to hold it. So, and then the, and the trigger. So trigger grips and, and sights. That's, so that's, that's really <laughs> what I make, you know, the, make a couple other things but um i really only make the parts that i really care about you know if someone comes into my shop can you make this and it's like i don't like that gun or i don't you know i don't <laughs> care you know nobody yeah. comes in with a print or make it I, I only make my own stuff you know or or the oem stuff which is a lot of it based on my stuff so, <laughs> so anybody come to you anybody i'm sorry jared anybody come to you with um trying to get you to make brass grips now that the uh <laughs> weight limits went up <laughs> tungsten, we thought, tungsten we grips yeah I've, I've gotten i've gotten requests for grip brass grips and base pads and i'd say i might but you know jerry keeps me busy so i don't know yeah. <laughs> cool we, we we discussed it the other day i asked him if he's planted to because personally i think it's completely unneeded to make the guns too heavy but at yeah. the same time i know i know people want to buy them well, and I think, the, you know, like the Shadow too. you know, it's already so heavy that I don't, I mean, maybe that's a little benefit to it, but, 
you know, I don't feel like I need a heavier gun than that, you know. Um, I mean, I, you can get caught up in the in the details, and also like, you know, also what happens I think too is like when when someone says you got to get this, and if you haven't de determined for yourself what's important, then you get pulled into the race of you have to have this thing or all your buddies that you shoot with, five, six buddies you shoot with, they all got the same something, right? And then if you don't have it, your self-image again comes down and beats you up and, oh, maybe I won't win now because I don't have those grips or something. And that all that stuff is garbage. But, yeah, you're, you, know. you're, you heard it here from Henning. You have to have his grips to win. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> but yeah, I, I, really, I really only do the stuff that I really care about. And... I have a lot of passion for base pads and grips and triggers and sights, so it's uh, it's silly, but you know, like it all comes from shooting, you know. That's what it is. So you you kind of covered with us our, our next question of how do you decide the type of parts you want to make. But with that question is, so what what is your process like when you're developing? Say when uh, when you decided you were going to make grips, what was your process like to develop a new product? So I wanted. You know, like the grips in general, when it, from the beginning, I wanted a contour grip. I didn't want a flat grip. I wanted something because our hands aren't flat. So I wanted something that fit the kind of a profile profile of the gun. I also wanted to make them aesthetically pleasing to the gun itself. So I don't want to, you know, especially when you do OEM stuff too, or in, in general, like the like the grips we make for the Shadow or the CZ. Then I wanted them contour, but I really sat down with it and I print, I 3D printed them felt in my hand, I shot the first match with a 3D printed grip, and it's really, you know, in some ways it's a little bit of an accident exactly how they come out, right? You know, you, you shape it, you grind it, you do this, and it's like, oh, okay, there it is. And then you gotta, you know, um, modify the CAD model to, to fit it and make it and see how you think and go shoot a local match with them, or two or three or whatever. Sometimes I'll, I won't make something for a long time. I haven't I had projects that I started 10 years ago and never finished because I, you know, I just didn't think it was right or something, you know. So it's not about just making something to make it. It's got to be something that, you know, this is what I want, you know. And then it's um, really 3D modeling it, maybe printing it if I need to. Then I put them in the machine and I run the test run on them, put them on the gun, go shoot them, shoot matches, um, maybe give it to some people, see what they think. Um, but I, I, know I get most of the, the feedback from just going out to shoot it. And I settle in and set it up uh, fixtures and start making them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, you, you'd mentioned a little, kind of a little bit earlier, but was uh, was last year your your first year doing OEM stuff with uh, both uh, Dan Wesson and SIG, or had you done uh, OEM stuff in the past? No, that was the first time. So there's been uh, – there was – you know, there's been some like you know, talks in the past of something that you know might come around, but you know, like you know, in a, in whatever career you're doing, there's like it's almost like something's lurking in the bushes, you know, and it doesn't happen, and you think, yeah, whatever, and then and then um, yeah, that that is really the first time I've really done true OEM work, and I you know it's been really fun, so very appreciative too, you know, it's it's, it's good, you know. Got to have cool stuff for cool guns. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's key. You know, like if I do, um, there are some guns I don't make parts for, and just because I, you know, I don't have them or I don't, you know, I don't, I don't try to make stuff just to make stuff. 
and we're pretty busy too. So it's like I got to pick uh, pick what I want to do. Yeah. And uh, w- with that, can you give us any previews about upcoming product uh, projects? Well, you know, I I would say so. Currently, except for like some expansion on maybe some of the DWX stuff, you know, um, there's a couple other things I want to do. So I have a list of things I want to do, but you know, again, it comes down to where the passion is, and um, you know, it, we're busy seven days a week making these parts, so it's a. Uh, but I, I try to, you know, get some things in and in here and there. But um, there will definitely be more um, more grips and more magazine extensions. Um, I have other thoughts for sites too, but they're. Um, it, it really comes down to, you know, pick the winners, too, because I, you know, I used to make maybe 500 or something, like, now I like to make thousands or 100,000 of them, you know, like, it's it's mass volume, and that's mm-hmm. it's a whole different challenge, but it's it's fun, you know, when you really set something up and, and making the same part over and over, it gets tedious at some point, you know, but it's it's also kind of cool just to, to set up machines that can run really efficient, and um, I, I want to pick something about I want to make a new project. I want to make at least a thousand or something, but I prefer to go into tens of thousands. Of course. So, our uh, our last question, and this is provided by our friend Joel Park, is I think it's his common question. He says, "What changes would you make to USPSA if you were king for a day?" Well, you know, I um, I have I try to give my input here and there. To various people in the sport and some things have been picked up on but one thing i would love to see is that we could bridge the gap between uspsa and ipsc if we could travel anywhere in the world and have the same rules and same sport uh, it seems to be impossible but you know like production ipsc i would bring that into uspsa and make it 15 rounds um i kind of in production optics and versus like carry optics I kind of like the 23 rounds in the USPSA. I think it's fun. And when you go over there and shoot 15 rounds, all right, so you change out your base pad. It's no big deal. Yeah. So that's easy. I would like to see um, way more, you know, real shooting challenges on the local level. You know, when you – I like to see, like, an average a hit factor of 7.5 in USPSA matches. You have 7.5, like your, that's your median. That's – and that may be coming from where I came from when I first started, because that's what it was, and that's what I fell in love with. There was, um, you know, every now and then, if, if the hit factor will go over 10, but, you know, 20 or something like we might have now, you know, that... Where are that, y'all shooting at? <laughs> yeah. You don't remember that, really, that pre-first stage of Nationals? Oh, I remember that one. That's 18. Yeah. Well, I mean, I want to see... I do, I do love the the running courses, the great grand courses of USPSA. But if you if you don't try to put targets everywhere, and then not four targets in a row, exactly. not, not the same target presentation, <clears throat> and also make sure that and I've, I've um, on local local level too, I've talked to the guys here too. It's like don't put the targets at the same distance. Put them at different distances to test people's skills to go from a seven yard or five yard, even three yard, to a 10, 15 yard target. And so where you place your targets when you're coming in, you're not coming into one shooting position. They're right in front of you. Make them work for it. You know, you have some targets to the left, some in the middle, some on the right, and you might have to move your body a little bit in that shooting area and then move on to the next one. But, you know, timing stuff is good, you know, with swingers. I love swingers and 
um, that kind of challenges the timing. So, you know, make the shooting hard in a sense, you know, like it seems to me like it's either every open target is five yards or there's headshots at 15. There's a lot of things in between there. And then zebra targets, I hate them. I think zebras should be gone. <laughs> um, if you look up the, there's a guideline for IPSC. And if you look that up, they will not, they don't allow Texas Star, which I, I don't like Texas Star. It's a circus. And I, I want to get away from the carnival stuff that we have in the USPSA in certain areas. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the Texas Star is the, the Polish plate rack isn't that hard, but it, I think it's a gimmick. It's a carnival. Uh, plate tracks should never be in a stage. They are something you can practice. And that's where the IPSC has a good principle. If there's something that is a standard target like the plate track, they don't allow them in the match. And I, I think it's a it's an easy target to put up. And then we were shot, we all shot the plate tracks. And, mm-hmm. But to what use one in our matches, what we'll do is we may use the plate track, we may only use one or two of the plates just to, because they're easy, like, you know, plates to set up. But we have, um, I had some made too where there's a single plate set up on the stand and it's an activator for a swinger. So it's more reliable sometimes than a popper, you know, because they can fail so much. Uh, we converted all our mini poppers to the falling plates and that's been great. Um, I The big poppers are good too, but they, you know, that would say another thing too, is like if you, you can get screwed on poppers so much and it's totally unfair. If you hit the popper and didn't go down, they can call a hit on the popper. I think you should get the score. Unless it's an activator that failed, why do we have to reshoot it if you can call a hit on it? You know, they painted a target. There's no doubt the ROs they asked, so I hit it. And now you have an automatic reshoot. That I don't like. And I think it's unfair to the shooter. that Whether they had a good run or a bad run, it's unfair to the shooter. Plus the shooter gets to shoot it again. So I think we should minimize reshoots at all costs. If you can score it, score it, because that's a true run the person did. The first time someone shoots it, it's a true run. The second time, they have rehearsed it. And then, you know, so it's like, okay, you, you're not competing, and you have a stage, and then you shot it really good, and then it failed, right? Something failed, you have to reshoot it. And then next time around, you, 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 you just trash the stage. That's unfair to you. It's unfair to me, right? Yep. So you would have beat me. And now I won't beat you, right? Yeah. So, and if they could have scored it, if they could have scored a popper, that would have been fair. You hit it, right? Everybody saw it. You hit the target. Score it. The more, the more I think about popper, popper calibration, the more to me it just doesn't make sense. I mean, no. like it, it's set to fall at at minor power factor, and if it doesn't fall, our process is to let someone shoot it again. Right. <laughs> right. Like, in, which, which, I mean, it's already been shot once. Like, it's not, it, it shouldn't be in, you would think it's not going to be in the same spot. It's just waiting for the wind to blow correctly, essentially, to get knocked over. So let's shoot it again. Now, sometimes they're just set horribly. They've, 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 uh, sometimes the poppers adjust themselves. They, they come out of adjustment, I should say, during the, uh, the match. And that's, but that's a, when they start setting hard. So, but, but shooting it again is just the dumbest thing I've, to me, it, if you explain that to someone that didn't understand the sport or know the process, they would go, what you, what? Right. I mean, they would, it's just, yeah, they'd be dumbfounded by that, which right. would be because, logical. Yeah. Because you have the, the setter that, you know, that the little stick there. And if that moves, it could move. And then they don't know if it moves or not. So the target has been altered any, 
anyway, so yeah. But if they had a hit on it, and if it was an activator, that then why? I agree. But if we, if I want to round that up, I would say if you give some sort of like, you know, marriage between USPS and IPSC, which I know has been they tried for 20, 30 years to make that happen, maybe more. And uh, it's weird to me, like we we have that gap there. Just, we we keep furthering that gap too. Like when new divisions come out, yeah. Like we we can't kind of settle somewhere in the middle. Um, our before the rule change, our our carry optics rules were so massively different than production optics that, like, if you were shooting like maybe like a a Sig three twenty or a Glock MOS or something, it was good to go. But the most popular guns, like the the Tamfos and the Shadow twos and stuff like that, weren't legal in both. Well, and I I haven't been part of this discussion, but you know, but. Last year, the production optics was a pretty new division for IPSC, and it, it followed USPSA with the carry optics, and they, and of course, they made their own rules, right? They made it 15 rounds, and you can, there's no weight limit, so that was nice, but then at the Europeans last year, they also introduced production optics light, so any gun less than a kilo, and they had 15 people who signed up in that division, fought hard, and at the end of the match, since there was only 15 people, they didn't give him any awards for it. So now you show up the whole match and didn't get a, you know, if you won that one, you didn't get recognition for it. And I think that's when it starts the watering out further. I think it's, you know, get rid of the light divisions, right? If you if you choose to shoot a Glock versus the Shadow 2, that's your choice. To try to make that even more competitive on there, it doesn't seem like there's enough people to support it, and I think they figured that out at the Europeans because it was maybe a hundred people or something like that that shot carry optics and or production optics, and fifteen in production optics light. And they, I feel bad for them, you know. You, you, yeah. You yeah. get you get to the award ceremony, it's like, oh, not for you. Yeah. You Especially know? if you really dominated and had a killer match, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And they would. It'd be interesting to see how that goes, how that plays out as the years go by, if they keep it the way, that same way. Uh, to see if people, because in my mind, people are going to, um, the more chances for a title is going to bring more people. So especially if you're shooting them all at the same time, that may dilute it a little bit. But you're going to see people start hiding out in the in the if if they're shooting them at the same time. But it, it'll be interesting. Um, I think it's interesting. But I kind of agree with you because choose the gun you like, and if you shoot a Glock, you shoot a Glock. I don't personally think the weight matters, but that's my opinion. Other people do, but um, it, it's going to be fun. It, it will be interesting to see. So, I mean, I've, I've shot a Glock 17 local match too, and it's a good gun to shoot too in, in regular production. And you, know, you pick your gun because you like that gun. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, not too many more divisions because you don't get to compete against the best shooters at some point. And that that was really cool back in the 90s where everybody shot together. And then, okay, so you got 44% overall, but you knew that it was against the best shooter in the world, yeah. you know? Yeah. So when they have um, major matches over there in Ipsic, it's all, like, their nationals are all one national at the same time. It's not a production and carry optics nationals, or which would be what standard in, in production yeah. optics. So they, it's, all, it's all one match like they used to do it here, right? Well, so now, so now you know, they split them up. Okay. Um, Norway too. They typically combine maybe two or three divisions, okay. maybe two divisions. Well, they're so, giving they're they're doing it like here. They're trying to give everybody. I, I mean, I'm assuming this. They're trying to give give uh, have more national titles handed out. 
Yeah. That way the top guy can shoot three or different three different national title championships, which is kind of cool um in some ways but then in some ways maybe not you know if it was all at one one match like it used to be back in the day you had to pick your favorite division and go and um yeah and and but anyways so um got one last question i like to ask this to everybody um and so i'm gonna ask you do you think natural talent is a thing well i definitely was not one um i mean i the you know I don't know. I mean, I think that like any sport, you know, like something comes easier to certain people. You know, they're almost built for it, or they have the mental aptitude for it. Um, you know, uh, you know, like if you were, so, I think it's just like what competition in itself is kind of silly, right? Because we're all built different, so we just decide to play around, you know, play together. And I think the the fun part anymore is like we go out and enjoy something we do. So. I mean, when I started shooting the sport, I walked around in dress shoes and pants, you know. I was not, I walked, <laughs> it was brand new to me. I didn't, I looked like a dork, you know. I was not, <laughs> I was not an athlete, there, you know. And then, and then, I, then I worked on it and I realized I can get pretty good at it, but it's probably also based on who decides to shoot this sport. You know, there's, you know, if we had, if this was a professional, true professional sport for people making millions of dollars, None of us would be competitive. Very you know? exactly. There would yeah. be other people coming out to shoot this thing for the money, and they would do it like Eric Rafael did. You know, just be dedicate their lives to it and shoot two hundred thousand rounds a year. So, but it's a cool sport. I think it's an, an incredible sport. I mean, it's a. When I found it, I just dropped everything. I quit my job and did it. You know, it. I think it's um, and you can, but if you don't improve. Then you might feel like, what am I doing? What am I doing? So, but I also at the same point, like, it got to a certain point. I mean, the, the highest I got in the U.S. was second, and uh, that one too was the one that I I predicted I was going to be second. I saw myself being second, um, and I I went in with that plan to be second because I Todd beat me um, by five percent. So I was you know second at ninety five percent, something like that, and uh, I. I also knew at that point, you know, I will do the best I can. I played the game to my my capacity, my skill set. I was not nearly as efficient in any of it as he was, but I could be consistent. So I figured out a way to be consistent at my level. And I saw, if I do that, how can I finish? And I saw, I'll be second. All right, fine. And I played the game to that level. And if I tried to win, which was unrealistic by any means, I probably would have been sixth or seventh. I would have failed. Yeah. So that that thing that comes in back to the mental part of it too. It's like we you try you practice, you have a good gauge of how you can do. You set your goal and you you perform your you do set your performance to your skill set. And if you don't break away from that, you know, not go like boring, like shoot super slow and boring or something, because that that is also another bad thing. But you know that that makes an accomplishment, and that's what the at the end of the day, when you feel like you went to, so I, my way I would judge a match, if I went through a whole match without any penalties, whether how fast I was or anybody I shot with, I go home feeling good. If I shot a good match, um, it, it's really like getting a, you know, shooting good points, and I don't really care as much what anybody else did. If I did that, I feel good. And yeah. you know, interesting. Jared, do you have anything else? 
we're running pretty late on this one. It's going to be a long one. Yeah. All right. Henning, uh, uh, we appreciate you coming on. Uh, thank you for taking the time out of your busy day. And uh, been fun, man. I'll make sure yes. to uh, send you a link to it so that you can you can listen to it if you choose. I'll let it go viral. <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, it was interesting. I learned a lot. Um, no, thanks for coming on. Enjoyable. I really appreciate it too. It's uh, fun talking to you guys. Yeah, we appreciate you giving us your insight. That you know, you've got a lot more experience in the game than we do, so it's it makes an interesting take on the on the game. And then uh, hopefully I'll see you uh, several times this year. See how the world goes. Yeah, we're all free state. Yeah. Yeah, it ain't at my house for free state. If the uh, if the world is still turning in June, I'll be uh, I'll be in Colorado a couple times. That'd be awesome. Look forward to it. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. Uh, stop by our Facebook page and our Instagram. Like, follow, all that stuff. Message us if you have any questions or whatever. Yeah. Thanks. Oh, real quick, Henning. What's uh, what's your website, real quick, for any? Oh, it's henningshop.com. So h-e-n-n-i-n-g-s-h-o-p.com. Henningshop.com. Yep. Appreciate it. Stop recording. Damn it.